I'm Andrea, one of the hosts of the Voice of San Diego podcast. Every week, I get together with the other editors at Voice and explain the news that matters in San Diego. Elections, politics, law enforcement, big investigations, and some fun stuff. The great palm tree debate, ranked choice voting, bike lane mania. It's great journalism and a lot of fun. Every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's Voice of San Diego. Hey, it's Justin from So Say We All. Just letting you know before we start the show that we are in the middle of our Hot Story Summer Fun Drive until August 1st. We would be so very grateful if you could make a one-time donation or become a supporting member to help us reach our goal. Just go to sosayweallonline.com support now. Choose the payment processor of your choice, and we will shower you with love, including thanking you by name on this very podcast. Thank you in advance for help keeping the dream alive. And now, on to the show. From So Say We All in San Diego, welcome back to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast, bringing you true stories from our live monthly showcase by the same name. I hope you're all okay out there with this newest hyper-contagious variety of COVID blowing through the world right now. A doctor friend of mine had to explain to me just how contagious it's become, with each infected person passing it along on average to 19 other people. The original 2020 strain by comparison was 3.3 people. I'm recording this episode shocked to the gills with the vid myself right now, but don't worry, the cats are fine. The thing I've been thinking about the most when I can manage to think about anything at all other than how badly I want a smoothie at two o'clock in the morning is how or if we're ever going to be able to tell stories about the pandemic. The thing about a good story is it usually provides some interesting perspective that sheds new light on a subject. But the thing about a pandemic is that everybody went through it more or less together. Even if you're a conspiracy theorist who thinks the whole thing is a scam or a evangelical Christian who thinks they can pray the plague away, there's been no avoiding it, and that kind of makes the whole thing tragically mundane in a way. It's been making me draw parallels to why my grandfather was so excited to have somebody finally to talk about World War II with since everybody in his timeline was pretty much over it. I'd say maybe we'll get our chance in 50 years to finally find an interested audience, but something tells me they're going to have their own problems to worry about. Whoa, mama. That's the name of the show today. Part two, in fact, picking up where we left off last episode with stories from our May 2022 showcase. And kicking us off is Jordan Coburn with a story that we wish was not so timely and relevant as it is, but we are super grateful that she's the one who got to tell it. Here's Jordan with her story, Hell Row, We Won't Go. Okay. Cheez-Its or saltines? <laughs> so not audience participation, but thank you. Um, <laughs> what does this nurse think I am? Some kind of animal? Cheez-Its, obviously. I took the red pouch with a shaky hand from the angel, sizing up the amount of crackers that actually made it into the small bag. Nine. Not nearly enough to stave off the toxic vat of nausea bubbling inside me. Thanks, capitalism. Before the procedure, they told me I'd feel like this once the sedation wore off. 
but I wasn't prepared for the wave of anxiety that accompanied it as I came to alone in a giant room, separated from the other traumatized women inside it by only flimsy medical curtains, their cast silhouettes in various states of mourning. On my left, a woman panicked as she said, I killed it, I killed it, please God forgive me. I hear the nurse's voice, you didn't kill anything. It was just a small group of cells, okay? We got it so early, nothing even started to form yet. On my right, another woman whimpered into her cell phone. You went to the beach with your friends? I told you you had to wait nearby. We were sitting so close to each other, I could hear the stupid fucking dumbass on the other end of the phone. Sorry, babe. You didn't tell me how long it was going to take. We just have to finish up here and forget it, she cried. And I started to cry with her. I fought back the urge to reach my hand out and touch our mutual curtain in a futile gesture to make her feel less alone. Can my boyfriend give her a ride? I asked the nurse through tears as she walked by my chair. Unfortunately, with COVID, no. It was the same answer I got when I asked if someone could come into the clinic with me that day. As I walked into the Planned Parenthood earlier that morning, I thought about how I got there. For what was now the second time in less than six months. <sighs> the sequel had felt very similar to the first iteration, except for a few key differences. For starters, the first go-round, I had the electric experience of walking through the infamous pro-life protesters on my way to the door. Or in this case, the protester, a sad, <laughs> one sad, adorable old man hunched over on First Avenue at 7 a.m. doing the Lord's work. As I walked by him, I fought the temptation to just pat him on top of his cute little head. He was like the old man from Up. Except instead of balloons, he was holding a binder filled with laminated pro-life propaganda and photos of bloodied baby carcasses uh, that I love to imagine he printed out by the dozens at Kinko's earlier that morning while whistling a tune. These two would be his ticket to the heavens. I passed him with a soft smile, feeling like that was the least I could do for a man who was watching a murderer just slip right through his fingers. I mean, brutal. <sighs> From his perspective. You're not even gonna try to trip me or something? Not even pray for a sprained ink, nothing? When I got to the front desk, I paid for my abortion with a stimulus check debit card that our anti-choice conservative government reluctantly passed. A transaction that, despite the present circumstance, brought me immense pleasure. If this was what exploiting loopholes, <laughs> loopholes felt like, I suddenly understood the appeal of being a Republican. <laughs> the first procedure went all right, except for one small hiccup, a hiccup the doctor labeled as potentially fatal, but nothing to worry about. You see, immediately after you get an abortion, they empty the contents of their dust devil vacuum onto a Petri dish uh, to confirm whether or not they ghost busted the pregnancy all right. 
I had named mine Casper. I'd always really liked Casper. But apparently he was nowhere to be found in the tissue sample, uh, which I was told could mean one of two things. One, that I was so eager to get this unwanted child out of my hostile pussy that the cells hadn't even grown enough yet to be detectable by modern science. Or two, that I had an ectopic pregnancy, meaning the pregnancy could be growing outside of my uterus and if untreated, could rupture my fallopian tube, causing agonizing pain, hemorrhaging, and possibly death. Nothing to worry about. Blood work in the coming days would confirm that my pregnancy hormones had dropped, indicating that Casper was in the Petri dish the whole time and was officially set free from the pathologically disheveled, financially drowning, manic-depressive potential parent that I was at the time. My body, my health, and my future were in the clear. That was until a few months later, when Casper II, <laughs> the last Casp happened. <laughs> and I legitimately Googled if Planned Parenthood had a punch card program for the poor, fertile souls like me. This is a real image I found on a forum. Holy shit. Much to both my and the conspiracy theorist who made this image's dismay, they did not actually have an abortion rewards program and I was on the hook again for an expensive trip to my old friend. <laughs> Trying to avoid the cost of additional blood work associated with an ectopic pregnancy scare again, I figured it'd be cheaper to wait a couple more weeks to get the abortion this time around then I'd have a smaller chance of needing to charge more blood work to my almost maxed out $15,000 credit card. Now, if you're listening to this and thinking, Jesus, this lady really doesn't have her shit together. <laughs> my point exactly. <laughs> Carrying on. As it turns out, waiting a couple more weeks into the pregnancy meant experiencing more of the extra shitty symptoms of pregnancy. And the seven days leading up to my second abortion were filled with nausea that was so bad, I was convinced I was incubating the Antichrist. Every morning I'd wake up and just projectile vomit, then bear crawl my way to my office chair and onto Zoom, forcing an ungodly smile at my viciously unpregnant coworkers. I couldn't tell anyone at work, and I couldn't take the week off. There's no such thing as anti-maternity leave. <laughs> it should be a thing though. Yeah. It should. Yeah. Fucking sucks. So I suffered in pain, shame, and the lingering smell of yak until February 9th, 2021, the day I got my life back. And my six month long nightmare was over. Now, it's probably time I address the elephant in the womb. How'd I get pregnant twice in six months? It was my then boyfriend's genius idea to come inside me without a condom. He said, all we had to do was work with my cycle, and if we just had sex during certain parts of the month, when I was less fertile, we'd be fine. Trust me, he said. 
I used to do it with my ex, Amy, all the time. Oh, well, that's a comforting image. Thank you. I was highly skeptical of this clearly atrocious idea, but he continued to push, and eventually I relented. And much to not my surprise, the first and only time we did that, I got pregnant, and I was pissed. But silently pissed. Like, could I really blame him? I had the option to say no, though. I did. He gave me an out every time he asked, over and over and over again. It had always been highly inconvenient to my partners that I wasn't on the pill. I tried going on hormonal birth control multiple times in my life in the service of men not wearing condoms, but every time, something went wrong. I gained weight with an eating disorder, not an option. I fell off my dad's health insurance, couldn't pay out-of-pocket costs. One time I even landed in the ER with a multi-day string of migraine with aura that was so painful, all I could do to try to end my vision-impaired agony was close my eyes and cry in the fetal position. The doctor suspected the episodes were triggered by the hormones in my new birth control. I carried a guilt with me through most of my adult life that I was the only thing standing between my partner and their pleasure. And I relented because I was sick of feeling that, but not as sick as I felt when I read that positive test for the first time. And it hit me that I would have to bear the weight of all of this bullshit on my own. I should have left him a couple times before, honestly. Like the time we were having sex during our first month of dating and I asked him to pull out. And moments later, he didn't. And I had to take plan B again for the third time that month. Or the times when I'd wake up in the morning to his hard dick pressed against me, humping me awake, despite the fact that I told him so many times that that's not how I wanted to enter my waking life in the morning. An object of his carnal compulsion, swatting him away like a rapey fart cloud. Just fucking just every morning, dude. This part's gonna suck, okay. Men have exercised control over my body and life as long as I can remember, though. At six, I was molested by my next-door neighbor repeatedly. He followed my family around, forcing us to move three times in two years, until I ultimately aged out of his age of interest. The cops said there wasn't anything they could do to make him stop stalking me, because he technically wasn't doing anything wrong. At 18, I was lured into a room at a party by a stranger when I was trying to find my boyfriend. He told me he knew my boyfriend and that he was in the room he was taking me to, but when he shut the door behind us, I quickly realized that nobody else was in the room but us, and my heart and stomach sank. I panicked as he came towards me, and right before he pushed me onto the bed, my friends busted into the room, pulling me away from him. Nobody, including myself, said anything to the man who just got caught trying to rape me, because he was just drunk. At 19, an unhinged Hunter S. Thompson wannabe from OkCupid stealthed me the first time we had sex, pulling the condom off without telling me. When I finally noticed what he did, I let him keep going, because I didn't think it was that bad in the moment. When I told him I didn't want to see him again after that, though, he proceeded to stalk me, and he emailed me incessantly and unsolicitedly chapters of a shitty sad boy book he was writing about me, romanticizing the night we had together. At 21, people who I thought were my best friends got me drunk to the point where I'd fallen and cut my knees on the ground twice before they took me into their apartment to have sex with me. Something they'd asked to do with me before sober, but I had vehemently said no to so many times. 
But this time I got drunk and didn't say no. So it didn't count as assault. At 22, four men on separate occasions forcefully and painfully shoved their dick in my butt without asking. But I didn't count it as rape because they were already penetrating my vagina. So I let them keep going, even though it hurt so bad. At 23, on a business trip, my boss asked me if I wanted to go up to his hotel room and have sex. I said no, and he fired me one week later and defamed me to my coworkers, calling me unprofessional and a pain to work with. Then too, I said nothing. And by the time I was ready to try to pursue any legal recourse years later, the statute of limitations had passed. In every single shitty instance, it's been about control and a woman afraid and trained to not say or do anything about it. And I need all of that to end. When I got the news notification on my phone at 5.40 p.m. on May 2nd, 2022, that the Supreme Court was planning to vote to strike down Roe v. Wade, my ears started to ring and I lost my night to silence. Sick and shaking, I stayed on the phone with a guy I'm seeing as he tried to give me space to vent but I was past the point of venting. I had no kinetic energy left inside me, just pain. My soul was truly crushed and I was in mourning. That my freedom and the freedom of the woman I shared a recovery room with that day is soon to be gone and in its place, the perpetrators that punctuated their pain given a place to flourish. Like the breed-thirsty church whose indoctrination leaves women on the other side of the curtain weeping with guilt and will now leave them weeping again, this time carrying their children of rape or incest. Or the selfish, reckless men who could knock their partners up but couldn't even be bothered to pick them up from their abortion on time and left them waiting alone on the curb like the deadbeat dad he was sure to have been. I wish I had an idea of what I'm supposed to do now, how I'm supposed to fight. How do you convince a person of something so undeniable as the right to decide when you become the host of a financially and biologically draining organism? How do you even find the words to make someone understand that it's sick and twisted to force motherhood on a person? Or that my future should be dictated by this guy? Sometimes I wonder if I should swing by Planned Parenthood for old time's sake and bring my old friend some flowers and an invitation just to chat. We can sit down on a bench side by side. I can flip through his murder binder as he flips through my gender studies textbook, <laughs> which will definitely include a picture of titties at some point, by the way, so it is not a fair trade. <laughs> and we can pretend for a moment that we respect each other's opinions and imagine a world where we didn't have to fight anymore because we knew that we were both coming from equally valid lived experiences that left us with the legitimate views we had. Psych, that guy can suck my fucking dick. Thank you. That was Jordan Coburn. Among her many accomplishments, you can check out the comedy and politics podcast she co-hosts, I Disagree, out weekly. Next up, Madison Ford with her story, Hello, Please explain your emergency. Here's Madison. My mom's life taught me how to be loved, and her death showed me how impermanent life is. 
Shortly after she died, I read a book about grief and the nonlinear pain of losing someone. The author talked about how all grief stems from our attachment to people, things, memories, and places. The solution they offered was not to fool ourselves with the belief that we can hold on to anything or anyone. Well, shit, this is depressing. <laughs> I wouldn't say the morbid book was exactly comforting, but honestly, I would have become a Scientologist and sold my intestines to Tom Cruise to even be in the room with comfort after she died. So the bar was pretty low from my post-trauma reading list. How did I interpret this deathly lesson as a 17-year-old who was about to move to San Francisco? While others were taking shots of fireball in celebration of freedom in young adulthood, I took shots to forget my own name. I withdrew so much from myself and everyone around me that it was literally impossible to attach myself to anything. I took it as a reprieve from existence because if I couldn't hold on to anything, I decided to care about nothing. And I was good at hiding it until you'd find me drunkenly stumbling the cold city streets at night with salty eyes as a pool of wasted potential. At least that's what I told myself for over a decade on my philosophical quest to understand what on earth the point of it all was. And I know your morbid curiosity is tingling, and when we're drinking beers after this, you'd wanna know, how'd she die? And don't worry, you're not alone in the oddities of wanting to know how things ended. It's a protective mechanism we all have to pass along wisdom on how to avoid death. So, I'll tell you how it happened. But before I do, let's talk about Kitty, my eccentric and polarizing mother. She despised every holiday focused on her. On birthdays, she'd sit alone in her darkness and watch the world live on without her at the bottom of a self-perpetuating trench. She just wanted her marriage, family, and ultimately her depression to be fixed. She had boundless anger at my dad's affair that broke our family, and it translated into a fury at a society she no longer felt a part of. How could her supposed friends not tell her that her husband was fucking someone else below deck of the boat they'd all spent countless summers on together? Now, the timing of my being born was unlucky. Just after the affair and right before my dad went bankrupt. Come on. At least my older sister got the delusion of a happy home and general financial stability for a few cognizant years. When my parents divorced, I grew up taking care of myself during bouts of her depression and my dad's progressive alcoholism. On bad days in elementary school, I'd set my own alarm, slip on a Disney-themed dress over a lumpy blonde ponytail, pack my Lunchable, wake my mom up from a sleeping pill slumber to take me to school, learn my multiplication, and make friends to inevitably ask for a ride home where I'd find my mom transfixed by the latest Lifetime movie about a vengeful bride out for blood against her bastard husband. <laughs> One day I came home and she was blasting Alanis Morissette's You Oughta Know. <laughs> and she belted every word like she wrote the damn song herself. And to this day, I credit my five-star karaoke performance of the song to her profound ability to hate men. <laughs> and my high school boyfriends never stood a chance. On the good days, you'd find her front row at my dance performances and talent shows, cracking jokes with fellow parents. 
She bought me my first thong and slingshot it across the department store to my utter embarrassment. And she was the one who taught me how to put a tampon in. And if you know, you know. And she crowdsourced funding for my cheer competition uniform when our family went broke. The woman might have been manic, but she still got shit done. In the good years, she wrote cards telling me how proud she was, and there was no absence of love on those best days. Of course, I was no angel. Like that time in high school when I racked up a $750 phone bill for both sexting my boyfriend and expressing myself through ringback tones like Destiny's Child's Bootylicious. Yeah, she wasn't too proud of that one. So just after the sexting bill and my high school graduation, my mom went in for surgery on her bladder. Apparently when you get older, you start to pee when you cough. And this was a problem because believe it or not, my man-hating mother had started dating someone. So she was looking to repair some of the pipes, if you feel me. Now the surgery does not end well. Bear with me on the details. They're the only way to describe the high-definition version of a tragedy. Also, this part is going to suck. My mom's heart stopped at some point in the middle of a night in June. Everyone knew it was tragic, and her teenage daughter found her body on the living room floor. They knew Kitty was a depressed person for most of her life, and the rumors spread quickly across the suburbs. No one really cared to know it was all an accident, a mistake when the doctor prescribed her painkillers after a surgery, which didn't mix well with antidepressants. The toxicity report showed it was the chemical levels of the antidepressant that killed her. The happiness chemicals actually killed her. I obsessed over every small detail of the hours leading up to her death. Almost like if I remembered everything, she somehow wouldn't be gone. Before she went to bed that night, she made egg salad for the two of us. It's the best egg salad she's ever, I've ever made, she told me. I went to bed early and I slept in her bed because she was out on the couch in the living room. The living room I cleaned for years as a self-made list of chores. It was easier for her to go to the kitchen or to use the bathroom out there in the living room after her surgery. The surgery she got to fix her bladder because she only wanted to be fixed. Before she went in for the procedure, she gave me her chapstick. I love you very much, Maddie, she told me. And then she gave me her chapstick. It's in the details. While she was healing, I invited my boyfriend over. I made Eggos that morning, sweet, syrupy waffles from a box, and he hugged her at the end of her visit and said, get well soon, Kitty. The morning she was gone, I watched television in her bed for an hour before I got up. I watched television before I found her. Before I found her, I was in her bed. The moment I walked into the living room, I saw her there on the ground, peacefully still. She wanted to be fixed. I ran to the bedroom to call 911. Hello, please explain your emergency. The memory's gone, the one where I explain. I felt the person on the other end of the line was too calm for what I'd just seen. We have an ambulance dispatch, they'll be there in 10 minutes. I waited outside in my underwear, heart out of my chest, and my cries woke the neighbor. 
She walked over to me in her pink frilly nightgown and sat down. Hey there, sweetie, is everything okay? I sat on the asphalt, knees bent to my chest with a t-shirt wrapped over them, and I rocked back and forth. My mom's in there, she's not moving. Oh dear, did you call someone? There was pressure in my chest and I was suffocated by her presence. Is your mom a woman of God? She asked. She goes to church. That's great, sweetie. She's with God now. And she sat down next to me and looked for my hand, but I didn't offer it. God wasn't exactly on my best friend list at the moment, and I hated her for trying to console me by making it about her own beliefs. But the truth is, none of us know the right thing to say in these types of moments. My mom's new boyfriend gave me a card and $150 with his condolences. Huh? Some words of wisdom. Don't be sorry for my loss. It's actually more of a get well soon and or in the next 10 to 20 years Hallmark moment. Now the ambulance pulled up to my driveway of 2382 Primrose Avenue and my heart started on a new rhythm without her. If time reset in a universe where she was alive in my rhythm, I'd spend my mornings opening up the blinds and showing her the world from my eyes. I imagine taking her hand and walking down by the ocean to discuss big ideas. She'd urge me to move closer to San Diego and I'd consider it because of her. We'd stay up late watching movies and laughing at the silly plot twists of life, marriage, and family. And she'd encourage me to stay true to my beliefs and to write as much as I could. We'd argue about her wanting me to have children and my not being ready just yet and I'd grow concerned for her age as her weathered skin began to betray her with signs of aging. It's in the details. When a person is depressed, we expect them to stop acting like it. We project our brains onto them, fix it. But I don't think support is stitched. It's listening even when we know they're wrong and showing up when life doesn't really feel convenient. It's knowing the best of them after seeing the worst and waking up in the morning after a long fight to stay for tea, just because. I look back at where I came from and I can't help but obsess over time. I read anything I can get my hands on that could give some amount of meaning to the timeline I landed in. I dove into the philosophical deep end of quantum exploration because my hope in the unknown universe among universes was the only key to a vastness of grief I could not comprehend. Every day, I watch the clouds moving, air above water, and there's nothing to be made of nothing, only matter, which surrounds invisibility, can show me what nothing is made of. Space and time frozen in a capsule of her absence. I contain it for a while in a balloon, drifting as a moment playing in time. A little bit of heaven navigating back to where I came from until the constricted matter loses its hold on an element built for space. When matter loosens her grip on the oxygen inside my skin, I float up in a way to be the whole, only to be captured again by space. Bubbles in time as I continue to gulp air towards my end. Now that I've traveled to the darkest depths of what a human can endure, when I look back at the stumbling drunk teenager wandering the streets of San Francisco, I no longer see myself as a broken person who wasted her potential with an unlucky hand. 
No, I respect the hell out of that girl for what she went through to get to the other side. And I see the rawness in her grief. I see the warrior who landed in a battle without a shield and kicked ass anyway. My mom named me after the mermaid in Splash. <laughs> and she hoped I'd become famous one day. She encouraged me to write to Oprah and tell the story of us, mostly to humiliate my dad the way she was humiliated by him, I think. And it's been 14 years since she died. And I know you all are not Oprah, but I think she'd be proud of me anyway. I no longer think the answer to the pain of grief lies in quantum physics, Alanis Morissette, going numb, or in the frilly nightgown promises of God. If you didn't get it by now, I'll say it again. It's in the details. That was Vamp First Timer, Madison Ford. Next up, an old friend of So Say We All's and the Vamp Showcase, Dallas McLaughlin with his piece, Motherland. When my mom's cancer came back a third time, she decided to forego treatment and live her life as much as she could. I don't want to be hooked up to any of that crap anymore. Let's just go out and do stuff, she proclaimed. She started making a list of things she wanted to happen before she finally kicked the bucket. But it wasn't a bucket list. She hated that term. Why would I kick a bucket, Dallas? It's screwy, makes no sense. Number one on her I'm gonna die soon list was a visit to the motherland. She meant Ireland, a lifelong dream for all of us. But then her list began to trail off and look more like a regular to-do list. At number four, she'd written buy new couch. Number 10, paint fence. And then number 16, bread, the thick slice kind from Smart and Final. Most of the items on the list seemed easy enough. The problem was my mom loved to talk, or gabbin as she called it, and she was excellent at it. Often when someone stares down cancer and lives to tell about it, at least one personality trait becomes heightened, but usually always the most useless one. Like really getting into volunteering, or believing in crystals, or meth. For my mom, it was the talking. She would talk to everybody. Waitresses, grocery clerks, people walking their dogs, the dogs themselves. She loved dogs. I once watched her walk by a couple at an outside table enjoying lunch, and they had a dog. My mom, as always, would comment, Oh, look at that dog. Oh, Dallas, what a cutie. Then she'd ask the owners if she could say hi to the dog. They, as always, obliged. But this time, my mom had been dealing with some back pain. And after a few seconds of talking to this dog, she pulled up a chair and sat down. She started gabbing with the owners, who didn't really know what to do. And when the waiter walked up, my mom ordered an iced tea. <laughs> this meant buying a new couch or buying bread from Smart and Final, where my mom will have to tell every person she sees or dogs why the thick sliced bread is the best bread was actually gonna be a lot harder than just flying to Ireland. <laughs> planning the trip was immediately difficult. My mom wanted to be a part of every inch of planning, but got annoyed that we kept her in the dark due to what my mom called chemo brain. This is where she'd forget something, get frustrated, then blame it on years of chemo, then get mad at us for no reason. It was fun. <laughs> Sometimes I don't remember down from up. It's screwy, she'd laugh and then sigh and then stare off into the abyss, probably thinking about dogs. 
Before the trip even got started, our stubborn family began arguing lightly. Passive-aggressive guilt trips followed by under-the-breath comments and talking behind people's backs. You know, classic Catholic shit. Which meant we were definitely ready for Ireland. My mom wanted to do three things on this trip. She wanted to fly first class, she wanted to stay in a castle overnight, and she wanted to kiss the Blarney Stone. As long as the chemo brain and being a family didn't break us first, we'd have the trip of our lives. A couple months later, we landed in Dublin. We met our private tour guide and driver named Mike who greeted us at baggage claim. He was tall, a bit chubby, with a classic Irish face and very calm demeanor. My mom handed him our bags like we were the Kennedys or something and said, I'm gonna go get some iced coffee. Oh, you probably won't find that here, Mike said. Really not much iced coffee in Ireland. It's already cold. <laughs> My mom replied with an exhausted, they better have it. I walked my mom to find a little restaurant bar so she could get her drink. When we approached, the nice lady behind the counter asked her what she wanted. Coffee, please. Iced coffee. Oh, we don't have that here, the woman replied. What do you mean, my mom countered. We don't serve that. Never have. My mom turned to me for some backup. She means, like, iced coffee? I'm not good backup. But it pleased my mom, and she turned to the woman awaiting, awaiting a reply. Uh, yes, we don't have that. My mom seemed irrationally upset, like someone who hadn't had their morning coffee. So she lashed back. You know, I feel sorry for you. Let's go, Dallas. The woman, not wasting a second, yelled back, Well, I feel sorry for Americans. It was year one of Donald Trump, so I felt that. I mouthed, I'm sorry. And then we wandered back to Mike and the rest of our small group. Oh, no coffee then, eh? Mike asked. Don't get me started, my mom replied. Yes, Mike, let's not get her started. You see, my mom was never normally this indignant or stubborn, another trait that was made super post her last fight with cancer. Her quick wit and passive aggressiveness made worse by chemo brain, like the worst version of the Hulk. You wouldn't like me when I'm uncaffeinated. We all brushed it off because we were on our way to our first city, Donegal. It's where most of our family was from, and as a surprise to my mom, we were staying three nights there in a converted castle that was now a world-renowned resort. I mean, they had a life-size iron statue of a dragon out front. My mom, extremely tired and caffeine-free, had eyes wider, wider than a kid on Christmas morning. She couldn't believe it, and neither could we. I mean, this place was fucking nice. Sorry, fecking nice. The next morning, no one was awake except me. I'm a natural insomniac, so things like time zones factor little into whether I'm able to sleep or not. I went out to meet Mike, who would quickly learn that waking up early was never going to be in the cards for our family. So we both ate some breakfast together at the resort. I explained to him about my mom's condition. Okay, Mike said. Thanks for telling me. I went through something similar with my mother years ago. A few hours later, everyone except my mom was dredged out of bed, and we made our way to Donegal Town Square to tour Donegal Castle. I really wanted my mom to join us, to see hallways our ancestors were probably put to death in for petty crimes. <laughs> she loved knowing about our family history and heritage, good or bad, but she was just too tired from all the traveling and couldn't make it out of bed. When we got back to the castle, my mom was in the dining hall. She'd somehow convinced someone to give her breakfast for dinner, probably through her subtle and debilitating technique of gabbin. I told her how bummed I was she missed Donegal Castle, but my mom just said, oh, it's fine, I'm in a castle now and this one has waffles. 
Actually, they went back to sleep for an entire second day. Two days lost, but I'd hoped the rest would do her good. The next day, we arrived in Galway, and my mom was indeed more rested, but now she wanted to take charge of the trip. She tried to check us into our hotel. She couldn't understand the process correctly and started to get upset at the front desk, so she just walked out. This time, there was no frustration or space or sigh after the frustration, no chemo brain excuse, just more frustration and then anger and then nothing. We all stood around not knowing what to do, but for the first time, I felt myself getting angry about it. To try and boost morale, we went out to eat. Galway is known for incredible cuisine from all over the world, so we went to this award-winning Italian place whose name I couldn't pronounce if you threatened me with death. The staff, chef, food, and menu were all imported from Italy. The waitress, who had a very thick Italian accent, helped us through the menu featuring mostly Italian words and then landed on my mom. Hmm, I don't see it on the menu, but I'd love manicotti, my mom said. Uh, we don't have that, the waitress replied. My mom assumed this was a language barrier. <laughs> manicotti! Yes, we don't have that here, the waitress repeated. My mom then replied confidently, well, they have it at Olive Garden. <laughs> we all began to sink into our chairs. The waitress couldn't look more confused. There was a pause. Manakati, my mom announced again. The waitress looked for help. My mom looked for help, so I stepped in. Maybe explain to her what it is, and maybe they have something similar. Well, how do they not know what manicotti is? It's screwy. We all sank further. I know what it is, the waitress replied. My mom then cut her off. Great, I'll take that. <laughs> we don't serve manicotti, the waitress continued. It's an American dish that we don't make here. Well, it's Italian where I come from. <laughs> Manna, my wife stepped in. Do you have anything like manicotti? The waitress replied excitedly, yes. She then explained a dish that was strikingly similar, but a little different to which my mom replied, well, I don't want that. I told my mom I'd order for her and she agreed. I ordered her the dish the waitress suggested and when it came, my mom said out loud with absolutely no humor involved, see Dallas, I knew they had manicotti. The trip continued to be a heavy mixture of good days and bad nights, or bad nights and good days. We'd have a beautiful time walking through the arts district in Galway. My mom spoiled my daughter with the clattering, toys, and clothes, and we even found cold brew. Not iced coffee, but it was close. Then the next day, my mom would be too tired to get out of bed. Or we'd have a delicious lunch overlooking the ocean. Then that evening, my mom would realize the things she'd been missing by feeling sick and then she'd misplace her anger and frustration onto us. Brushing it off became harder and harder, and our bickering and arguing got worse to where it seemed like no one was having a good time. But then, like a college kid who decided to take a year off and go backpacking in Europe to find themselves, I did have an epiphany. You see, our next hotel was across the street from a small carnival. My five-year-old was elated. I had volunteered to take her down for a couple of hours while everyone else rested. The hotel looked out at the ocean, and while watching my kiddo ride what might have been the jankiest carnival ride in history, it really started to sink in and make a little more sense. 
My mom didn't want a bucket list because she wanted the list to include us. She wanted everything she did to be experienced with us, from buying couches to plane rides. She wanted to give us an unforgettable goodbye. But how do you admit to yourself, or let alone anyone else, that you're dying without being just a little bit pissed off all the time? I needed to be more understanding and patient. I couldn't ruin what little time we had left on this trip or in this life. On the drive to the Blarney Stone, my mom was almost giddy with excitement. She'd been dreaming of kissing the Blarney Stone since she was a little girl. Mike pulled me aside and told me that she wouldn't be able to do it. He explained that the wait to get to the top where the stone was usually lasted an hour or two, and there was only one way up, an extremely narrow and unbalanced staircase that once you were on, you couldn't leave. There simply wasn't any room to turn around. And from all the traveling, my mom was now mainly using a wheelchair. We broke the news to her. She was defeated, but still optimistic that it would magically work out. We all agreed we'd look at the line once we got there. Maybe it wouldn't be too long. So we wheeled her over. The line was pretty long, but determined she stood up. Then it started to rain. She sat back down. She started laughing. And for one of only three times in my life, I heard my mom meaningfully curse. Oh, fuck it. We piled back into the van and waited for my mom, or waited, sorry, waited for my wife who disappeared for a minute. When she came back, she handed my mom a chip of the Blarney Stone. Apparently, they sold them in the gift shop. For how much, I was never told. But my mom, with tiny tears in her eyes, gave it a smooch. Our last day was spent in Dublin. Mike dropped us off at Trinity College, a long tour my mom would never be able to handle. And then he kept my mom and my kiddo behind and took them on a search for iced coffee. He'd also prepped the day to take my mom to places specific to her family heritage, even stopping at a vacuum store named McKeon's. This was my mom's maiden name. She talked to the owner of the store for an hour. When Mike picked us up from Trinity College, he looked completely beat. Your mother's quite a lady. She tuckered me out, and that's not easy to do. Oh, I know, I said. She'll talk your ear off. She's special, he said. Reminds me of my mother. Come to find out later that Mike and my mom had a long day of heart-to-hearts, including long conversations about both their divorces, kids, dogs, and how they'd come out the other side best friends. The next day, we left for the airport. Airport. We said our goodbyes to Mike. We gave big hugs and tipped him so much money, I think it was legally just another paycheck. <laughs> Leaving was so tough, mainly because none of us wanted to. After days of bickering and fighting, my mom constantly getting irritated and us irritated with her, we had finally just let it all go. For the last three days, we'd reached an incredible and perfect groove on our trip, and leaving now was just plain shite. On the flight, reality flooded back as I saw my mom start talking to herself. Full conversations, kind of loud, to the point where the flight attendant asked if she was okay. I knew that the cancer and the chemo and everything in between had severely changed my mom, but I wasn't prepared for how severely. And when you've grown up with an absolute anchor of a human who dedicated their entire life to having it together so you could succeed, you really have no understanding of what it'll be like watching them fade. It feels personal. It feels as though it's directed at you. 
My mom was never actually angry at us on the trip. She wasn't angry at the coffee people or the Italian woman who didn't have manicotti. The cancer had taken her away, her ability to be in control, but she was still cognizant enough to know it was happening and not be able to stop it. She was angry at herself and didn't know why. And I was angry at her for not knowing. When we got home, one of the first things we did was take her couch shopping. It took six hours <laughs> at one store, deciding between three couches. Her inability to make decisions and remember things only declined further, and it took us all a while to fully understand what was happening. I never truly did. But the bickering and anger we'd all felt through most of our Ireland trip was washed away and replaced with love and fondness and an overwhelming desire to go back there just for one more day with my mom. We held her wake at her house. We had an Irish jam band playing in the living room. We had Olive Garden cater and supply plenty of manicotti. We made sure dogs were allowed and we had nothing else on the agenda but to talk to each other for as long as anyone wanted. Dallas McLaughlin, everybody, give it up. Dallas McLaughlin. You can find his two storytelling and comedy albums, Rough Drafts and An Evening of This, on Apple Music Now, and we suggest that you do. Bringing us home today, Jay Carroll with her story, It's Not a Tramp Stamp. Before most people get a tattoo, they brainstorm it, pin inspiring art to their vision board. They philosophize about the deep personal meaning of their masterpiece, or at least choose a legit tattoo artist. Not me. I'm 19, wandering down Main Street with my druggy boyfriend, Mike. Really high. I'm on methamphetamine, because that's my life as a teenage addict. Seeing a tattoo shop, it hits me. Hey, time for me to declare my adulthood with permanent ink on my skin. Inside is a hairy, biker dude who's old, like 30. <laughs> Despite my heroin chic look, I look like I still need my parents to drive me home from book club. I confidently say, a tattoo. I don't know which one. You can almost hear him mutter, damn kids, as he points to the art books. Flipping through, we search for the cookie-cutter tattoo that fits me best. What I love about Mike is the excitement. I never know what we'll get into. We met when I was 16. He's the resident drug dealer at my favorite coffee shop. He introduced me to hard drugs, Thanks to meth, I can party with him while still finding time to study all night for honors classes, and work, and volunteer. Looking at the cheesy designs, I grow impatient and point at number 88. It made me slightly giggle, and therefore belongs on my body forever. 
Mike agrees. It's cute. A floppy-eared bunny falling asleep. No, stoned. With a blunt hanging out of its furry carrot-chomping mouth. Under a tree with a pot leaf. It's a pot tree? It's obviously perfect. Tattoo guy takes one look and says, no. No? Well, well, that's hella whack, which is how we talk. He gives me a speech like he's my dad, except it's his biker brother, Uncle Jacks. You'll have this tattoo all your life, and you'll regret it when you stop smoking weed and have grandkids. The hell I will! First I tell him I'm never having kids. But he says you'll change your mind. This dude thinks he knows me better than I know myself. And second, I insist, I'm a pothead for life, yo. <laughs> this is club soda. <laughs> I argue, but he is totally bugging. Fine. I spend 60 seconds looking. Might as well have closed my eyes and pointed. Yep, number 94. I ask, is this one acceptable to you, sir? Rolling his eyes, he asks, where do I want it? Nowhere visible. It's an out-of-the-way spot that, unfortunately, would soon give rise to a derogatory nickname. But is it really a tramp stamp if it's right justified, not centered? No, it isn't. <laughs> As Uncle Jax presses the transfer paper on my back, he asks if I've ever had prolonged pain. I tell him I tried to pierce my belly button using ice and a safety pin at a sleepover when I was 15. But I only got halfway, which my best friend never let me live down. Oh. I see, I have overshared once again. And that story does not earn me street cred. Okay, some things never change. <laughs> I sit on the table sideways in my Daisy Dukes with combat boots to show how tough I am. When Uncle Jack starts, it feels stabby. But I'm okay. Partway through the outline, he disinfects my back and restarts needling. Suddenly searing pain. I look back, expecting to see him holding a lighter to me. I'm hit with a wall of dark energy. 
Like when you accidentally take too many drugs because you're sure they're bunk and you're about to demand your money back, but then out of nowhere, a rubber hose turns into a king snake and you befriend a frowny face talking apple in its belly and start to hyperventilate because now it's too much. <laughs> the world goes black. When I open my eyes, Mike and Uncle Jax are lifting me onto the table. In mid-sentence, I had passed out, fallen backward, and would have cracked my skull on the concrete if Mike hadn't caught me. When they sit me up, I realize I have to throw up, and I stumble to the bathroom. As I drop to my bare knees on the unspeakably dirty floor of the Main Street tattoo shop, I can't help but wonder, why am I doing this? In hindsight, I always had something to prove. I was a too skinny, depressed teenager who felt I had to perform and be perfect, even if it means following through with this drug-fueled decision, no matter how dumb it sounds. It's about refusing to admit defeat. So I get back on that table. To distract me, Mike talks nonstop, as tweakers do. Uncle Jack's pauses and my back burns. I pass out again and throw up again. Now I've attracted negative attention, my nightmare, from the tattoo artists, the front desk girl, and their clients, who all agree it's my pain tolerance. I don't think it hurts that much, but apparently my body can't handle it, so I'm passing out. And my body can't handle that, so I'm vomiting. Behind my back, they're laughing at me. Or am I paranoid? No, no, they are, they're laughing. Is it the tweak, I whispered to Mike? He doesn't think so. But am I on drugs that heighten sensitivity when I should be on something that dulls my senses? Yes and yes. Just like the tattoo itself, I hadn't given thought to why people get drunk, not spun out, before they get one. So reluctantly, I continue. But soon I pass out again and throw up again. My bare knees, now dirtier than if I really were some tramp at a busy truck stop. <laughs> this is it. Halt, cease, desist. I grab Mike and tell him, we're leaving. That's when he checks out my back and says, you only have half of the outline. I don't care. I'm Audi 5000. For the first and possibly only time in my life, Mike gives me sage advice. It's just a weird line you'll have forever. Even if you don't color it in, you have to finish the outline. Mike, like a lot of addicts, is very convincing. He once convinced me to go into the lion's den, the police station, while high, as he turned in a stolen stick of dynamite, which I know nothing about. Dynamite that was sweating in the heat. 
this was after I convinced him he could no longer store it under his bed without air conditioning in the desert. So it works both ways. I say, I'll return later for the outline because I, like a lot of addicts, am a liar who will say anything to get out of this. Mike is on to me. He says, suck it up, buttercup, which is how he talks when he's high. And just like that, they pull me back in. The three of us agree we'll power through without stopping. And without further incident, the outline is done. They assure me the color will be easier, so I keep going. I've conquered this. Finally, the tattoo is finished. I'm eager to go celebrate by snorting a fat rail. Uncle Jack slathers on one last coat of an antiseptic called green soap. And for the fourth time, I pass out again and throw up again. That was how I found out it wasn't the pain. It was the soap. Turns out I have severe skin allergies to everything. Ever since I started doing meth, I'd get rashes and sometimes pass out. I believe the drug changed my chemistry and caused these reactions that got worse with repeated exposure. I'm lucky to have quit for good. So long ago that I've forgotten my dealer's pager number. But the allergies still plague me to this day, as does the tattoo. I haven't seen it in years since I stopped wearing crop tops. It's always covered. It's a devil, a cartoon devil, meant to poke fun at things people fear. It's unrecognizable, just a faded blob. But one friend said it looks like it's wearing a diaper. Months later, someone on the street yelled, girl, with the tattoo. I thought because my tat is rad. <laughs> no. She worked at that shop where I'm apparently famous. She told her friend, this is the girl who came in. <laughs> Anytime I'm near a tattoo shop, I get dizzy and nauseous which means I can never edit my tattoo or turn it into something else. It's a permanent reminder of who I was then and how far I've come in escaping a way of life that later sent Mike to prison. In the end, Uncle Jax was right. I would have regretted even more a floppy-eared, blunt-smoking bunny tattoo on my back, which is definitely not a tramp stamp. Thank you. That was Jay Carroll, and that is our show. Besides Jay Carroll, you heard from Jordan Coburn, Madison Ford, and Dallas McLaughlin. 
Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts if you have not done so already. And leaving a review and a rating does indeed help people find us, though I cannot explain to you how. If you want to learn more about So Say We All, including how to get in touch, upcoming live shows, and more, pop over to our website, sosayweallonline.com. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudmel. Leslie Ferguson was our volunteer producer on the live show. Support and sustenance is made possible by the supporting members of So Say We All. And we would be so very deeply appreciative if you'd consider giving us a little bit of help to keep the power on by popping over to sosayweallonline.com slash support and helping us out with a one-time or recurring donation. All of the music you've heard on the show is provided by Kurt Conan of AMFM Music, except for this goodbye track graciously provided by 1032. Thanks so much for listening. The reader does complete the writer after all, and we hope to have you back very soon.